A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. We're getting there. I could use another 15 minutes of omelet discourse. Oh, really? Wow. I say the more ingredient. No. <laughs> no, no. The people deserve to know. Well, look, you know what? You have to put the ingredients in the egg, then fold the egg. It's weird to just fold the egg over the ingredients. Okay, I agree. This idea that you cook an egg omelet style and then fold it like a pita over a bunch of veggies and ingredients and you call that an omelet. But I am 100% against that method. (laughs) I am all for you cook the egg with the shit in it. I agree. I agree. The only thing about the cheese in the middle of the fold. Uh Uh-huh that I totally get is that restaurants have, you have to be able to see it or else people think well, it's not true. there. I remember we had to sometimes at the bakery put some shred, just some cold shredded on it just so people knew that the cheese was in there because yeah. they would always send it back and you'd be like, right. there's a fuck ton of cheese and you just yeah. can't see it. Yeah. So anyway. Look, I'm not about catering to people's ridiculous demands <laughs> in a restaurant. We don't negotiate with terrorists in restaurants. <laughs> so if you're coming in, trying to terrorize the cooking staff by being like, this isn't right, but it is. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, sure, there's idiots out there fucking up all the time. 
Yeah. I've forgotten an order or two in my life. Of course. But chances are it's going well. It's nobody's fault. You just, you'll get your food. A proportional ex- response yes. is all that's asked. Yes. Where you're like, I, you're not falling off a cliff, dude. Right. Like, right. this is not Simba. <laughs> <laughs> no, where's this Mufasa. going? I need this, I need this analogy to complete. <laughs> This is not Simba. You know, stuck out in the middle of the wildebeest stand- <laughs> rampage. You know, you have to go save him. It's nothing like that. This is not a serious situation. It's cheese. Scar, like, let's try to relax. Brother. Brother. I ordered provolone. <laughs> He's like, provolone is 86. No. That's little Simba. Right, with his ears flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sad. It was your fault, Simba. You <laughs> forgot the cheese. <laughs> you didn't key it in. There's only one way. You need to leave the kingdom and never return. Please I try it to... with a restaurant worker because they will straight up be like, oh, yeah, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I have felt that way before. Like, I fucked up an order. Oh, God, I need to leave the kingdom and never return. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go live in the woods with my, my warthog friend. i going to find a warthog and a, and a meerkat. <laughs> Eat, <bugs. laughs> Eat bugs. It's what I deserve. Oh. Hey, uh, well, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for returning. I'm Eli. I'm Diana. We're here with another wonderful episode for you today. Yeah, this this story came to us from one of our listeners. Brandy uh-huh. reached out and asked for this one. So thank you, Brandy, thank you, for the Brandy. idea. It was very cool to look into this, uh, cr- I mean, crazy story. Yeah, I was kind of thinking this story was in the back of my mind already. Um, just I had because, never heard of it. Well, I was only for me because of the musical Ragtime. Uh, so it was okay. in the back of my mind, but then when uh, when Brandy wrote in about it, I was like, oh, yeah, yes, we got to mm-hmm, do that. That's, that's awesome. a good one, yeah. So thanks, Brandy, for yeah. sparking that. Uh, it's a turn-of-the-century story, so mm-hmm. we're in the 1900s, eight, late 1890s, early 1900s, and it's full of fashion models and architects and artists and rich guys in Manhattan and sex clubs and rape and madness and murder. And a lot more than that. So it's a story that really has it all. Yeah, I don't think we should waste any more time. Let's just get to it. I agree. Let's go. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right, well, we will start with Evelyn Nesbitt. She's born on Christmas Day, either in 1884 or 1885. Not sure, because her mom would change her age sometimes to make her seem older so she could work. Um, She's born in Pittsburgh. She was encouraged by her dad to kind of be a reader and sing and dance and kind of be an artist and stuff. So she got kind of into that as a young child. But then her father passed away. Uh, He was only 40 at the time, so pretty young. And left the family penniless. They had no money at all. So that gets difficult, obviously. Yeah. Um, they lost their house. All their stuff had to be auctioned off. And um, her mom's name was Florence Nesbitt. And Florence had to kind of rely on charity for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then she she took in laundry. She tried to keep boarders at this like boarding house or whatever. But she was not cut out to be a landlady because she could not bring herself to ask for rent. 
So she wasn't mean enough, <laughs> basically, to be a landlady. Damn. And so she kind of gave that up. They moved to Philadelphia, and she got a job as a sales clerk at the fabric counter of the Wanamaker department store and quickly brought her daughter, who Evelyn, who was 14, and her son, Howard, who's 12, to also work there for 12-hour shifts six days a week. Yikes. So the whole family is busting ass just to get by. But 14-year-old Evelyn, she's a very pretty young girl, and an artist comes by, and she was totally struck by her beauty. And she said, you know, will you sit down for a portrait? And her mom checked, and she was like, okay, well, this artist is a woman, so I feel okay about this. So yeah, you can do it. And then Evelyn becomes this like favorite model among all the artists in Philadelphia. She's posing for illustrators and painters and even like some stained glass which I think is super cool if I was a stained right? glass model. So Evelyn had a memoir called Prodigal Days, the untold story of Evelyn Nesbitt. And she wrote, quote, When I saw I could earn more money posing as an artist model than I could at Wanamaker's, I gave my mother no peace until she permitted me to pose for a livelihood. I mean, I get it. Because they were like trudging away at this stupid retail job. Yeah. And she's like, Mom, I'm making like crazy money just to sit Sitting quietly still. for five hours. <laughs> like, let me do this. Sign me up. <laughs> Seriously. And then I'm immortalized in stained glass. So they moved to New York in November of 1900. And Florence was like, all right, well, this is working out. So I'm going to go around and find some artists in here, reputable artists. Like mm -hmm. she wasn't going to just potter off to anybody on the street with a pencil. Um, yeah. <laughs> But she called around from her friends in Philly and and uh, and found some artists in New York and Evelyn started posing again. There's a book by Simon Batts called The Girl on the Velvet Swing. And there's a great review of it on the GothamCenter.org. And they were kind of pointing out that women in Florence's social class were totally reliant on their husband's income. So poverty was just one male breadwinner's death away, basically. Like you could do everything right and still end up with nothing if your husband died. And they were kind of like, it's good to keep that in mind in context of all of Florence's and Evelyn's decisions. Right. Because it was pretty risque for middle class people to be like posing for artists and stuff. But yeah. obviously it was kind of the only thing keeping them out of the street. So that's why she was willing to let her daughter pose for photographers also and all yeah. this and then go on the stage and stuff. And they say, quote, the challenges faced by Florence and Evelyn, who were less vulnerable than their African-American immigrant or more impoverished peers, provide a lens into the ways the economic landscape of New York City exposed women to sexual exploitation and required them to rely on their relationships with sometimes violent men for survival. And I'm including that quote because it's very important context for the whole rest of this story. So please keep that in mind as we keep talking about all these crazy people. <laughs> yeah. And I would argue that's important context to keep in mind in general in, general. in life today, because that's still true, mm -hmm. I think, to some degree where people are like, well, why did she stay with him for so long? And you're like, you can't really appreciate the economic repercussions and, you know, all kinds of repercussions that come from leaving someone sometimes mm -hmm. that you might rely on for certain reasons. And emotionally, yeah. you know, I mean, we talk about gaslighting a lot yeah. lately and yeah. people do feel guilty yeah. even in a even in a relationship that's not abusive. Yep. People have stayed in it when it's not working because they feel kind of guilty about leaving or yeah. just uncertain about leaving or they might just be ashamed that it didn't work out like they thought it you know if I just tried harder or something I mean there's a lot of different reasons people uh, stay go back and check out our Robert Downey Jr. episode uh, and find out why Sarah Jessica Parker stayed with him for seven years right. while he was very difficult to be around and mm -hmm. and you know heavily addicted to really bad drugs yeah 
So Evelyn is a huge success. She's like one of the most in-demand models of the time. Evelyn Nesbitt, she's the talk of the town. There's nobody more beautiful than Evelyn Nesbitt. And she's appearing on the cover of Vanity Fair. It's a Harper's Bazaar. There's a Cosmopolitan, a Ladies Home Journal. She's on beer trays. She's on tobacco cards. She's selling sheet music and pocket mirrors and postcards. 1900. Everybody in 1900 loves Evelyn Nesbitt. Here's some 1900 slang. She's the fuzzy navel. She's the she's the fiddle strings. She's the company car. Wow, the company car. She's great. They love her. They're obsessed. And even in her early teens, she posed for Charles Dana Gibson, who idealized her as the Gibson girl, which was this like epitome of feminine qualities. And it was like how you should wear your hair and your clothes and how your general aura should be is the Gibson girl kind of ideal. And she was the ideal. But she was getting a little bored just standing around all day quietly. And she had been getting a couple offers to appear on stage and like get into theater. So Mm -hmm. she pressures Florence Nesbitt like, hey, mom, I could probably make more money this way. And so in July 1901, she joined the cast of a wildly popular play called Floradora at the Casino Theater on Broadway. She's dressed as a Spanish maiden on the chorus line. So not like a starring role or anything like that. She's in the back. Right. But But even so, she's so beautiful that she catches the eye of these two super rich dudes, Stanford White and Harry K. Thaw. Well, sure, it's Floradora. Everyone's there. (laughs) Everyone's Everyone's going to see Floradora. It's the talk (laughs) of the town. It's the the hot shit. It's It's the new sensation. It's the... It's this year's Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's so good. All right. Stanford White. Yes. This guy was New York City's most famous architect. He did a bunch of like private residences and public monuments and famous structures like the Washington Memorial Arch and the Bowery Savings Bank or the Gould Library at NYU. Uh, He also did the second Madison Square Gardens. There have been four. Madison mm-hmm. Square Gardens in New York City over the many years that New York City has been around. Mm-hmm. And number two was Stanford White. Right. Number two. <laughs> what a shit. <laughs> the poopiest Madison Square Gardens <laughs> there ever was. I think actually it was the prettiest. It was but beautiful. he was a pooper. So. Right. <laughs> uh, beautiful buildings. He was a very talented architect. We can't deny him that. Mm-mm. His style was the Spanish Renaissance. That was sort of his mode. And his Madison Square Garden had this soaring, elegant tower. At the time, it was the city's highest tower. And it was topped by this scandalously nude 13-foot statue of the goddess Diana, goddess Thank of the hunt. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So it was a 13-foot nude statue of Diana shooting a bow and arrow. And there's this website, famoustrials.com, and they say that a guy named Anthony Comstock, Hmm? who headed an organization called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. The New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. We don't want none of this lewd, gross, I don't want to see bodies. (laughs) I don't want to hear about natural things. That's all very, we're very Puritan here. The New York Society for the Suppression of Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, so he was this, like, put some clothes on that thing. Yeah, and they worked. They they were like, all right, fine, we'll we'll put clothes on it. And Stanford White goes up and says, yeah, I'll put a little drape on her and dress her very nicely. And then this big wind came one day and just blew the clothes right off of her. <laughs> so there she is, stark nude again. And what does Stanford White do? 
He says, let me shine a light on this. And he installs these huge lights right below her, actually drawing more attention to this naked statue. <laughs> he could have argued. You. He could have been like, well, it was wind. I mean, God clearly wants this statue well, to be naked. Anthony, what, you saying something against God now? <laughs> Stanford White's great-granddaughter, Susanna Lessard, wrote a piece in The New Yorker about him. She's like, listen, this is, a you know, an acclaimed architect. He basically put his stamp all over New York City. Some of his buildings still stand today and some of his monuments still stand today. You can go see them right now. But there haven't been that many biographies written about him, which you might think, you know, an accomplished man or whatever. But she was like, unfortunately, many biographers lose heart when they dig into Stanford's life and find out more about his sexual proclivities. And so they try and fail to write about him. Yikes. Because he was so fucking wild. <laughs> she describes it pretty clearly. She said that, you know, they went to dives to watch sex and to have sex, accompanied by bohemian cronies or rich friends he had met as clients. So I guess he's kind of whining and dining them, sort of. And they'd drink and eat a whole bunch. They'd go to boxing matches or spend a night at the opera or at a music hall or something. A vivid example of a night out with Stanford was his pie girl dinner in 1895, which was a stag party. A stag party is when a guy throws a party with just his male friends and right. basically invites a bunch of prostitutes. So yep. that's a stag party. So he throws this stag party where nearly nude young women would serve wine. A blonde would serve the white wine and a brunette would serve the red wine. <laughs> which I think is a nice touch, honestly. But <laughs> aesthetically, I like it's it. I like it. I, he's an artist. You know, he was thinking. Yeah. He's putting details well, together. Well, you can see from across the room, like... I really want a red wine. Oh, she doesn't have any. Oh, but she does. It's true. I think it's clever. Uh, I'm just going to say it. I like this one element of this party I really like. <laughs> this single <laughs> element of this party. And then one girl jumped naked or possibly clad in gauze. The reports differ. Out of a pie accompanied by canaries. Okay, there's two parts of this party I like. <laughs> Is it the pie or the girl in the pie? <laughs> uh, there's two things I love. And it's women wrapped in gauze and pie. <laughs> and canaries. Three things I love. I would pay someone like five grand to jump out of a pie for my birthday. I feel like we could maybe arrange that. I just don't know how you get them in the, the pie. we don't have the five grand. <laughs> That's well, the problem. Well, also, how do you get the pie? The pie big enough? There's probably a whole Netflix Baker's Challenge TV show <laughs> about people baking pies big enough for people to jump out of. I only ever think of Adam's, Adam's family, family when they're, just <laughs> they're trying to get that girl. Ta -da! she in there when you baked this cake? Lurch. C'est la vie. And they all laugh. I was like, oh, my God, so dark. <laughs> but, I mean, if you look at the turn of the century gentlemen's clubs, they were all doing crazy shit like this. Yeah. Okay, pie girl, this and that. So that wasn't really what was tripping up the biographers. The, the weird sex stuff. It was mainly about who he was having sex with. Well, this can only get darker. Susanna writes that Stanford really enjoyed the process of seduction, saying... He moved into the life of a very young woman, sometimes a barely pubescent girl, who was in a fragile social and financial situation and who would feel that she had little choice but to let him take over her life. Then, when trust had built up, he would have sex with her and not long afterward, he would dump her. <sighs> So I'm guessing they were going through his life and they were finding like a lot of 13-year-old girls that he had basically yeah. ruined. And they were like, nope. 
And she said a lot of times they'd start because they had a lot of respect for him as an artist yeah. and an architect. And yeah. then just now I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't write about him, you know, yeah. which I get. It's hard to live with another person, which you basically have to do if you're a biographer. You kind of have to live with that person for a while. And it can be really hard to live with a shit person like that. When you're I trying mean, to write about them in, a, in some kind of objective way. Not unlike the current research I'm doing for one of our upcoming episodes mm-hmm. about Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. <sighs> Who I was like, I don't know much about them, but I know they were pretty crazy. And like 45 minutes into that research, I'm like, I need to get away from these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so stay tuned for that episode. Stanford would often promise to marry them. That was part of the lie. And at the time that he met Evelyn, he was actually fighting off a breach of promise lawsuit from the young actress who introduced them. I guess she was like, listen, this guy promised to marry me and then left me high and dry. But why don't you say hello? Yeah. <laughs> like, OK, you got to meet this guy. A couple flaws. But I, uh, I really just want him to stop calling me the real sweetheart. <laughs> oh, man. He even opened up his own sex club. It was very secretive. It was called. Sewer Club, which several of his contemporaries were members there, uh, like the painter Thomas Dewing, who said that these members would explore, quote, physiological interests and investigations, which sounds like really shitty code. So they were having sex. Yeah. (laughs) And that brings us to this episode's first side piece. Who? One of these contemporaries who belonged to this club was this sculptor named Augustus Saint-Gaudens, who contributed the beautiful 13-foot statue of Diana for the Madison Square Garden Project. So Augustus said in his autobiography, The Reminiscences of Augustus Saint-Gaudens. <laughs> what a name. What a name. What an artist's I title know. for an autobiography. My reminiscences. My reminiscences. Is, 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 is. He said that, quote, a devouring love for ice cream brought him and Stanford together in 1875. So they went out for a bowl or something? Yeah, right? They were just <laughs> I just like, think that's so You funny. like ice cream? I like ice cream. No one else in New York likes ice cream. Oh, buddy, we got to spend more time together. <laughs> Everybody in New York's got the same voice, by the way. They all talk like this. All right, so he's he's another artist whose work can still be found today, like um, the Colonel Robert G. Shaw Memorial on the edge of the Boston Common was him. Uh, Some historians believe that Stanford was bisexual, a point to this correspondence between him and Augustus as evidence. Susanna says that they would habitually address each other in these letters as like darling or doubly beloved. And once Augustus wrote to Stanford, I'm your man to dine, drink, fuck, bugger or such, metaphorically speaking. So (laughs) you can fuck me in the ass, but just as a metaphor, you know, no homo. That was the, metaphorically speaking, was the no homo of the day. Uh. <laughs> or he'd sign off his letters with, kiss me where I can't. Mm. <laughs> like, uh, the back of the neck? I don't think he meant the back of my neck. My elbow? Or he would address it with like a phallic drawing, right? Mm. So Susanna always says their whole world was so fraught with lewd excess that it's hard to know for sure, like, if some of these were serious terms of affection or if that's just kind of how they talk, like this homosocial ribbing, she calls it. Yeah, it's like In, the locker room talk of the day. Yeah, exactly. Like Some dumb shit. Well, it's hard to say if they were more comfortable with their sexuality, and that's why they could talk like this, or if they were more uncomfortable with it, and that's sort of like, <laughs> yeah, why don't, you, why don't you suck my dick? <laughs> <laughs> don't really, I wouldn't want to, metaphorically <laughs> speak. Metaphorically speak. So I don't know. She writes that in some ways, uh, Stanford's activities don't even seem to be sexual in the usual sense. 
They're more like a form of compulsive consumption. And according to the Gotham Center, he once said that he and his friends could do as they darn please. Right. So she's kind of saying, you know, to a rapist, it's all the same, I yeah. guess. It doesn't really matter yeah. what the sex of the person is. It's just about the power that it right. makes me feel that, that we're having sex at all. So anyway, not not sure about him being bisexual. It has definitely been floated that he is. Yeah. Um, but he might was. have just talked about dick a lot. Or, yeah, they just obsessed with their own dicks, so they like to talk about it a lot. I don't know. In the 1890s, Stanford's spending was out of control because he had a lot, you know, he had a lot of expenses, guys. He has all these lovers, and he would pay their dental bills. Okay. Which sounds nice to me right now because I I would love to have my dental bill paid. I wish you had a lover to pay your dental bills, honestly. (laughs) That would solve a lot of our problems. Uh, But apparently he did it because he was trying to perfect them as if they were works of art. So it wasn't really about their health. It was just about him, what he had to look at, I guess. But (laughs) But still, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it. Uh, He put Evelyn and her mother up in this fancy hotel for more than a year that he also furnished for them. Uh, He paid rent on his various retreats, like his sewer club. He had multiple residences, so he had to pay rent on all that. Um, but he was kind of the personality where the more debt he ran up, the more money he'd spend. Like he'd start an expensive project just as he was meant to be paying off some crazy amount. So by the time of his death in 1903, he was $709,000 in debt, which today would be, if I can consult your machine again, $2.1 million. That's a lot of debt. Ouch. That's a lot of dental bills. <laughs> right? <laughs> How much is it? They probably a cost real $100 back then. <laughs> of the medical industry. Yeah. Seriously. But he did not care. He continued to live the high life completely on credit. And some of the laborers he'd engaged for building projects were not being paid and were threatening to sue him. Oh, that sounds familiar. It doesn't it? <laughs> it's I feel like, like, man, New York, New York guys, you know? Yeah, there's a recent rich New Yorker who got mm-hmm. in a lot of trouble for not paying the people who he agreed Mm-hmm. And also some questionable uh, yeah, connections to yeah. ladies. But anyway, yep. we won't go there. So this is the guy who Evelyn met in 1901. He's a leader of society, famous, acclaimed architect, big spender, and not so secretly a debaucher of young women and deeply in debt. So a lot of, lot of sides to old Stanford. Yeah. And we're going to hear more about Evelyn and Stanford right after we get back from this little teeny tiny itsy bitsy commercial breaky. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, 
And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, everybody. So Stanford started on his seduction routine, right, with Evelyn. He moves in, her and her mother, into nicer digs at the hotel... Like we said, he furnished it for them, even paid for her brother, Howard, to go to the Chester Military Academy. Mm -hmm. And he invited Evelyn to come to these parties at his apartment, which it was decorated like super height of luxury. Right. I mean, he's an architect. He knows Mm -hmm. design. Mm -hmm. He knows interior designers, I'm sure. And it is the best there could be. Gilt, velvet, I mean, pillows. You know what I'm saying? Probably gaudy in today's standards. I bet it it was. (laughs) I think everything was at that age. Oh, yeah. They loved that. Gilded age, right? Yeah. 
he even had this like red velvet swing that he hung up in his apartment and he would have her swing on it and everyone's like, oh, I'm a, look at me. I'm just a young girl on a swing. This is so fun and pleasant. A red velvet swing just for me. And, you know, obviously it was a little more uh, nefarious than that. Yeah. Evelyn and her mother even considered him nothing but this benevolent sponsor, right, of her career. Like, oh, this is just the guy who pays for all our shit. This is so great. And he seemed to have this, like, paternal interest in her. It didn't seem to her like it, he was – she never even considered that he was moving in on her like this. And uh, neither did her mother, just yeah, to neither stress one of them. that. Yeah, they were both totally just, like, had this totally innocent idea of who he was. Evelyn even called him terribly old. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't long before he persuaded Florence, her mother, to go visit some old friends in Pittsburgh. Said, you go off, you go see your friends. I'll take care of Evelyn here. Everything's going to be fine. Have fun. He invited Evelyn to this party at his apartment while mom was out of town. And when she arrived, he told her that everyone else had turned his invitations down. Oh, just no one came to my party but you. It's just the two of us. What a coincidence. Yeah, right. Come on. And then he asked her to change into this yellow silk kimono and sit on his green velvet couch drinking champagne. According to Evelyn, that was her last memory of the evening. Until the next morning, she woke up in his bed, naked, with blood on her legs. In Prodigal Days, her memoir, she recounts, Because of the unusual quantity of wine I had, I lost all self-control. I grew dizzy and passed out. When she woke up, she found myself in bed, naked except for an abbreviated pink undergarment. Stanford lay beside me. Catching a glimpse of my reflection in the mirror, I think I let out one suppressed scream. I know I started to cry. I was utterly confused, still a bit dizzy and terribly embarrassed and afraid. Stanford put on a robe and gave me the yellow kimono that was lying on the back of a chair. Don't cry, kittens, he said tenderly. Kittens was his pet name for me. Don't, please don't. It's all over. Now you belong to me. Oh my god. I know. It's frustrating because a lot of, when you look up this story, a lot of people are really reluctant to call it a rape. Yeah. I guess because she was a little bit wishy-washy about calling it rape herself mm. in her later years and stuff. But when you read that, it's kind of hard not to take it any other way. Yeah. She was fucking not in her own mind. She woke up. She never said yes to that. Right. She woke up, freaked the fuck out. Yeah. And he's like, you belong to me. I, I just don't know what else that would be. Oh, that's clear as day, I think. But she continued to see Stanford, who she called her benevolent vampire. Wow. Which I think is also pretty telling how she felt about him. That he so drinks a... blood and turns into a bat. <laughs> right? Bat? <laughs> uh, well, or he was like this very scary. Yeah, controlling older. Powerful figure yeah. that she was, I guess, scared of. Oh, even though he's yeah. benevolent and being nice to her a lot of the time, she's kind of like, I just never know what to expect because one night you were nice to me and I woke up with blood all over myself. So. Well, Plus, we talked about that, like that in and of itself creates fear. Oh, yeah. you you provide everything that I need to survive. And if you go away, if I make you angry, you, that could all go away. Like that's fear right there. And not only for me, but for my whole family. Yeah. And she's kind of been the breadwinner for a few years now. So she probably feels a lot of responsibility for them. Yeah. So anyway, for six months, they saw each other pretty much daily. For her 17th birthday in 1901, he gave her a pearl necklace, three diamond rings, and a set of white fox furs. And decades later in her memoirs, she would say, Stanford White was a great man. That he did me wrong, 
that from certain moral standards he was perverse and decadent does not blind my judgment. Um, I think her, yeah, maybe a little bit blinded. I'd say a little bit, a little bit. It's just tough to to litigate someone's feelings about somebody, right. I guess. Right, right. Um, but I do feel sorry for her right now because I think she feels. I feel sorry for her throughout this story. Yeah. I guess more accurately, but I think you know if you had really given her a chance to leave him, I think she would have if she could have found something else. Right. Stable. Right. So that's going to bring us to this episode's second side piece. Who was that man? Um, According to Paula Uruburu's book, American Eve, Evelyn Nesbitt, Stanford White, The Birth of the It Girl and the Crime of the Century, Stanford White gave a party that Evelyn attended as well as John Barrymore. And John had been smitten with Evelyn because of her performance in a show called The White Rose. She thought he was handsome, witty, and fun-loving. And they were actually kind of close in age, too. He was only 21. She's like 17 at this point. So instead of these like 60-year-old men she's friggin' hanging out with, I'm sure she was having a lot better time with this handsome young man. Right. By 1902, they're having a little romance. They're going out. She would go back to his apartment until the early morning hours. So the gossip columns were kind of getting on them and reporting about them. But he was just a broke newspaper illustrator who was kind of irresponsible with his family money. So Evelyn's mom and Stanford White both thought that this was a bad match for Evelyn. I guess because they wouldn't know until later that he would become one of the greatest American actors of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And Drew Barrymore's grandfather, by the way. So anyway, they're like, we need to get her away from this John guy. So Stanford and Florence kind of get together and they'd arrange to have Evelyn sent to this boarding school to study acting. And art. The boarding school is actually run by film director Cecil B. DeMille's mother, Matilda. And John did ask Evelyn to marry him in front of Florence and Stanford, and she turned him down. So speculation station. I think if he had asked her alone, she probably would have said yes. But oh, she yeah. knew that both of them were not into it. Right. So right. I think she was like, I have to say no because they're freaking standing here staring at me. Yeah. But maybe not because she didn't want financial stability. So maybe she was also like... Yeah. You just not make enough money. I can't you can't pay for my brother, you can't pay for my mom, so you can't be you. And around the same time that she was seeing John Barrymore, as well as Stanford White, she was also being courted by a third guy, this mysterious Mr. Monroe. Mr. Monroe. He came to see her perform over forty times and he would send her flowers and jewelry and big old gifts. And she wasn't really interested in meeting him, maybe because she already had a rich older guy in her life, right? She's got. And he's I don't a lot need, of trouble. I don't yeah, need another one. I don't of need him. another one of these. <laughs> Y'all are all a mess. But in 1902, he succeeded through an intermediary in getting a lunch date with her. He kissed the hem of her dress and pronounced Evelyn to be the prettiest girl in New York. <laughs> right there in the middle of the restaurant, and not long after. He revealed himself. He said, I'm not actually Mr. Monroe. I'm the very rich Harry Kendall Thaw of Pittsburgh. Yeah, Evelyn wrote later, a disguised Napoleon revealing himself to a nearsighted veteran on Elba could not have made the revelation with greater aplomb. (laughs) (laughs) Really? So he clearly, he really put some sauce on it. (laughs) I I like to picture him like in a a whole disguise, like he's got a cane and a false nose (laughs) and his long scraggly wig. And then he like throws it off. Ta-da, look at the, I'm actually this handsome rich gentleman. Well, handsome, I don't know. Harry Thaw. 
Harry Thaw. Who is this guy? He was the heir to a railroad and coal fortune. And he was set to inherit $40 million, which uh, I need to check what that was. In this time, what year was this? Uh, 1901. Uh, $40 million in 1901 is equivalent to about $1.26 billion today. So quite, quite an inheritance this guy was set up for. And he was not a very stable fellow. No. Not, not, uh, not every crayon was lined up in the right <laughs> section of that box. Um, Paula Uruburu said in her book that his mother was known for abusing her servants and having these just like wild bouts of, of totally uncontrollable temper, mm-hmm. right? Just difficult person. And as a child, Harry had insomnia, he had temper tantrums, and then he would have these like just episodes of incoherent babbling, just talking, 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 and would often slip back into baby talk, which he retained that well into adulthood. He loved to just throw big, heavy household objects at servants. Other people's misfortune triggered giggling fits in him. Total schadenfreude. One teacher said that he had, quote, an erratic kind of zigzag walk, which seemed to involuntarily mimic his brain patterns. <laughs> yeah, they said he was a troublemaker, not very intelligent. Yeah, but it didn't matter because he had the right family name. He had all the money in the world and he was still able to get into the University of Pittsburgh. And later on, he used that name to get himself transferred over to Harvard University. He was the Lori Laughlin of his time. <laughs> he bragged that he studied poker at Harvard. So, I mean, he went to a really good university, but didn't fucking do anything <laughs> there. <laughs> he apparently lit cigars with $100 bills. He went on long drinking binges. He attended cockfights and he chased women. So this is his college career. In 1894, he chased a cab driver down a Cambridge street with a shotgun because he thought that the driver had cheated him out of 10 cents. Which in today's money is not very much money. (laughs) I mean, and he lightens cigars with $100 bills. Like, let the cabbie have the damn 10 cents, you bitch. Hey, you don't get to lighten $100 bill cigars by letting cabbies run away with 10 (laughs) cents every day, right? He said, he said the shotgun wasn't loaded, but I don't think that was really the yeah. main problem with <laughs> that story. Yeah. It's like, come on, man, you're acting crazy. Yeah. And ultimately, he was expelled from Harvard for immoral practices and for threatening teachers and students. And he must have done something kind of crazy because they only gave him three hours to pack up and get the fuck out. Like they were like, you get no time. So Speculation Station, what are immoral practices at Harvard because I know what some of those guys practice at Harvard and it's all immoral. <laughs> what the hell was he getting up to in there? That I'm was not sure so I can bad even imagine what he the, was doing. You know, oh my, you know what it was? What? He was probably like rooting for Yale at the rugby games <gasps> or something. You bastard. Three hours? I want you the fuck off of this campus. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> oh, the Yaleys aren't so bad, he said. Get the fuck out. <laughs> So Thaw's parents tried to get him in line, mm-hmm. but not <laughs> by some really draconian measures. They were really hard on him. Yeah. His father said, son, I'm going to limit that monthly allowance of yours. All you're going to get from now on is $2,500 a month. A Which, month. <laughs> real quick, running back to the calculator, $2,500 a month. 
uh, in today's money, $74,000. So that's all you're getting and not a penny more until your behavior shapes up, young man. Which, by the way, I'd love to make $2,500 a month now. I know. Today's money, $2,500 a month would be a great allowance. Sounds good. Uh, Yeah, this was a time when an average working man earned $500 a year. Jesus. Then his father died in 1893, and he left Harry $3 million in his will. And Thaw's mom was like, you know, that was so unreasonable to give you only 25. How can a man, how can a young man live on $2,500 a month? It's It's ridiculous. Let's... Let's put this back to a normal amount of $8,000 a month. Mom, I'll I'll try to make it work. (laughs) I guess I can cut some corners. (laughs) Which, yeah, in today's money is $245,000 a month. Quarter mil every month. A month. $3 million a year in allowance. So obviously this amount of money every month gave him license to indulge every one of his whims, anything he wanted to think of gratify his sadistic sexual impulses. He went through Europe and tore through, like, all their prostitutes. (laughs) He liked to restrain them with handcuffs and other bondage devices. Big fan of whipping. So he's just, like, kind of into some sadomasochist. You know, you said tore through the prostitutes in Europe, and I had this dark image in my mind, and then Mm. you explained it, and I was, yeah, that was was the image in my mind. That was it. In Paris in 1895, he threw a party costing $50,000, which is $1.6 million today. If anyone's ever thrown a party that big, I'd like to go. (laughs) But he threw it just for himself and 25 of Paris's most beautiful prostitutes. So that's it. He spent that much money (laughs) just to have 25 women around him hanging out. And he engaged a military band to play John Philip Seuss's marches because Harry said... (laughs) The best party music is a John Philip Sousa march. I love it because as Harry said, they lifted the roof off the place. Well, they sure do. John Philip Sousa knows how to raise a roof. Damn right. And I always think of Mr. Show, which is one of my favorite shows. (laughs) Bob Odenkirk's like, and David Cross is like crying, like, I'll never be as good. The most beautiful music. And he keeps yelling at his pregnant wife, like, woman, you will birth me a marching band. All you've given me are drummers. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, Mr. Show is so good. Watch it. So good. Each of the prostitutes at this party, by the way, got a special party favor. It was a $1,000 piece of jewelry wrapped around the stem of a liquor glass. Okay. I mean, that's pretty sweet. He also had some other expensive habits, namely a speedball habit. A speedball, in case you don't know, because I didn't, is cocaine and heroin injected together in one dose. Because I guess the idea was that cocaine makes you you know, is an upper. Mm-hmm. Heroin's a downer. So if you do them both together, you kind of have like a perfect cocktail of, of both the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's like a uh, a Lunesta and a shot of espresso. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Please don't take Lunesta and a shot of espresso. I don't know what it would do. I'm not going to find out. It sounds awful. Terrible. And yeah, and uh, many, many people and many celebrities have overdosed from speedballs, including Philip Seymour Hoffman. So there's still a thing that people are into today, and they still are killing people. So don't do speedballs. That's my message. That's the message I'd like you to take from this episode. (laughs) This week's PSA. Don't do speedballs. And he took laudanum 
as well. At one point, drinking an entire bottle in a single swallow. I mean, this guy partied. This guy partied. It sounds like a terrible party. (laughs) Awful party. So then Harry goes back to America, splitting his time between Pennsylvania and New York. He really wanted to be in those elite clubs in New York. He wanted everybody to respect him and him to be like amongst the upper social class. I mean, he probably felt like it was owed to him just for being from a wealthy family, right? Mm -hmm. But all of his applications to these men's clubs were rejected. So he became convinced that it was because of this asshole Stanford White who had considered Harry to be a poser and a clown and once called him a Pennsylvania pug. Yeah, apparently it's because he had kind of a baby face. So he was trying to make fun of his, like, youthful features, which I was like, I mean. Ooh, clever burn, boss. You really got him with that one. Which I didn't, we didn't describe Stanford White, but if you look him up, the mustache that this man rocked was un, I mean, it's like ridiculous. Like, it is so big. It just keeps going. You think it's going to end and then it just keeps going in both directions. It it looks like a really bad costume piece, but it was not. It was totally real. And it was also, he was a redhead, so he must have been very like, just really distinctive, huge red mustache. Uh So another incident happened that kind of convinced him that Stanford White had it in for him. Harry threw a big party, but all the girls he invited went to a party at Stanford's house instead. Now, it turns out that it was because Harry had insulted a showgirl and her revenge was to (laughs) hijack all the guests for his party and bring them over to Stanford's because she knew that would piss him off. But Harry just refused to believe that. And he got even madder about it when somebody wrote up in a gossip column that he'd had no doe-eyed girlies at his party. (laughs) Doe-eyed girlies. Harry Gaithar can't even bring a party together with any doe-eyed girlies at it. Total sausage fest over at Harry Gaithar's place. All the doe-eyed girlies went over to Sanford White's house. That's where the doe-eyed girlies like to hang out. <laughs> I guess because it's a stag party, they were like yeah. doe-eyed. I don't yeah. know. I was just like, these deer references are real weird. <laughs> but it's more likely, according to Uruburu, that Harry really just admired and resented Stanford's social stature. And he recognized that they both enjoyed similar lifestyles, but White could just, he was so big, he could just operate with impunity. And Harry was kind of censured for his behavior. So there was this rivalry built in that I, it, it seems to me like Harry really felt and Stanford was like basically oblivious to it because he was like, Psh, this guy, well, I'm not, I'm not going to think about him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Harry spent all of his time thinking about Stanford. That, yeah, that's it was a is a Draco Malfoy at best because right, right. you know Draco is obsessed with Harry and Harry thought about Draco sometimes, but it wasn't <laughs> like his overall thing. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> so the long and short is that Harry already hated Stanford with a burning passion. He fucking did not like this guy. He was probably looking for any way to humiliate him or fuck with him in the same way that he felt he was being fucked with. And some people think that he pursued Evelyn specifically because she was seeing Stanford. So it was like that was the attraction to her was that I can take her away from him. I mean, that checks out. Right. It makes sense to me. Much like Stanford, he won over Florence by promising a lifetime of care and protection for Evelyn. And apparently he also kind of tried to warn Evelyn about Stanford because he knew a little bit about these young girls and stuff like that. So he kind of tried, but he he couched it in very vague terms. So she kind of didn't really know what he was talking about. But also, Uruburu was like, she probably felt kind of trapped, as we've been talking about a lot. 
L.A. Times writes, she had nobody to turn to. The sexual power she held over these two rich men was immense, but essentially she was their chattel. That's the contradiction and the sadness in her story. So she's still seeing both of these men at this point in the story. So then at this time, this is when they sent her to that boarding school, remember, to kind of get her away from John Barrymore. And towards the end of her year there, April 1903, she had to have emergency surgery for appendicitis. And both Stanford and Harry visited her while she was getting better, but they were very careful never to cross paths. Mm -hmm. And Harry and Florence discussed Evelyn's future at this time. And a few months later, in what Evelyn would later call the worst mistake of her life, she, Florence, and Harry agreed to sail to Europe together for an extended vacation. But why was it such a mistake? We'll find out right after this commercial break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot 
and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. And welcome back to the show. We're going to find out why Evelyn Nesbitt would say going to Europe for an extended vacation, which sounds amazing, Mm -hmm. would actually be the worst mistake of her life. Spoiler alert, it's because Harry sucks. (laughs) He like deliberately created a really hectic itinerary, which was calculated to weaken Evelyn emotionally and exhaust Florence. Like he was really working on these women because he wanted Evelyn to marry him. And he wanted Florence to fuck off, I think. Yeah, like wear them down until they don't have the capacity to and they're just fight like, back. Fine, whatever, Harry. Yeah. You're exhausting. Jesus. <laughs> and he also started to kind of show his temper at this point. They had not really seen the real Harry yet. Yeah. But they're in vacation and he starts to kind of have a little free, his little temper tantrums and freak out a little bit. Smithsonian mm-hmm. says that sometimes when a waiter displeased him, he would snatch the tablecloth off the table and send everything crashing to the floor or even turn the whole table over. <laughs> I got to I got to say, I'm picturing one time he's having a tantrum. He's really pissed off and he grabs the tablecloth and he yanks it and everything <laughs> just stays there. <laughs> it doesn't move. And, and then he gets even madder. even madder and flips the table <laughs> he over. Flip it over. <laughs> he flips the table and it like just does a complete 360 <sighs> and lands on its legs again and everything's fine. And everyone's applauding. Like, Ooh, wow. very nice. No, I'm angry. The entertainment tonight is wonderful. <laughs> anyway, that's not what happened, though. He was a furious monster. <laughs> exactly. And also, please don't treat your waiters like that. Guys, come oh, on. No. Well, it worked on Florence. She finally was like, fuck this. I'm going back to America. This guy's embarrassing and terrible. And um, kind of fought with Evelyn about it a little bit. So she went alone. She left Evelyn with Harry. Damn. And Harry and Evelyn went on to Paris without her. Before Florence left, I'll say this really important thing happened where he kept asking Evelyn to marry him. And she kept being like, no, 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 I can't because she's not a virgin. And she's like, men marry virgins. So, but she didn't explain that to him. She just kept saying no. And finally, one day he wears her down. He keeps asking and asking. He wears her down. And she says, I can't because I slept with Stanford White. And she describes the night to him of her rape by Stanford. And he's incredibly sympathetic. And he keeps, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, poor girl. What a monster, you know. And he gets the whole story out of her. I think she was very reluctant to share it with him because. Probably because he's starting he's to make, like, make her real nervous. Such a temper, yeah. 
So she's I mean, like, a, I don't want to tell you about this, but... She's all embarrassed by it, of course. And yes, of course. And then B, yeah, like, what's he going to do? Mm-hmm. But he gets the story out of her and at the point, at that point is very sympathetic and kind about it. But then he kind of chose this weird itinerary for their trip um, and took her to all of these sites devoted to the cult of virgin martyrdom, like the birthplace of Joan of Arc, for example. So it was kind of like... I don't know. I think that's weird because if you just said, I'm not a virgin because I was raped and you were like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let's go look at all these pure women unlike you. You know? Yeah. It's just just like, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to dig into your subconscious about this. Yeah. These women are better because they didn't let that happen to them or something. I guess. Just like, just again, just part of that breaking her down. Mm -hmm. Just like these little. Like a psychological thing. Little psychological, these uh, subliminal hints. You know, where he knows that she's going to have that on her mind constantly. I think he's trying to make her think about it a lot so that she'll turn away from Stanford. Maybe. Probably. Is it like he just keeps being like, oh, isn't virginhood nice? Look at all these virgins. Here's a powerful virgin. Here's a saintly virgin. You know, and she's just like thinking about it constantly so that he's not letting her let it go. He's trying to make her want to leave him, I think. And feel bad about herself. He's trying to lower her Uh self-esteem, you know, and all these things. He's doing all the classic monster playbook. Yeah. And weirdly, like, she said later that he was obsessed with female chastity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is why she thought that or if there were other things. But I think it's interesting to point out that a man can be very obsessed with a pure woman and still tear through all these prostitutes and treat them like shit because they weren't pure. You know what I mean? Like, he's got a real weird outlook on on women having sex yep. period like yep. at any time at the birthplace of Joan of Arc this is funny <laughs> Harry wrote in the visitors book she would not have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around <laughs> which I, really I, I really love, love shade <laughs> it's a ridiculous comment but I really love the idea of Stanford White or Harry Thaw trying to walk up on Joan of Arc and not ending up, you know, impaled on a spear very quickly. Yeah, she ain't interested. <laughs> I your... wish. I wish Joan of Arc would have had five minutes alone with Stanford Either White one of them. Harry <laughs> Preferably both. Yeah. So he took Evelyn to the castle in Austria. And according to Evelyn, this is where he kept her locked in a room for two weeks. The castle. And he would maniacally beat her with a whip and sexually assault her all this time. All while screaming about Stanford White and what he'd done to her. Harry, what are you doing to her? Yeah. But but this is why I brought that up because I'm like, it was sort of like he, she was, if you take out all the Stanford White stuff, if he really was interested in her, uh-huh. did he think she was this pure virgin worthy of his money and time and then found out about the rape and was like, oh, good. Now I can treat you like a prostitute in Paris. Well. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't, you know, s- speculation station. But that's, I'm kind of like, it just seems like it really changed in his mind, her value. Right. But it, but it also just plays into his deep obsession with Stanford White, mm-hmm. too, right? It, it's more about him than her, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Or he is just like, oh, something else to punish Stanford about. Something else this monster's done that I'm going to bring him down for. And here's how I'm going to do it. And it's totally irrational. And it's just violent, psychotic behavior Mm -hmm. uh, from someone who's got a really serious obsession. Again, with a guy who probably spends two fucking seconds a year thinking about him. Mm -hmm. 
but he's just completely obsessed. Why else is he calling out Stanford White while he's whipping and beating her? And how does punishing Evelyn have any effect on Stanford? I mean, he's not even there. Y'all in Austria. I think this is one of the things with obsession where you think because his whole world revolves around Stanford, he thinks that everything he does affects Stanford, too. Mm. Right. Like he like I think he's got this misguided belief that Stanford's going to give a fuck, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that he's that he's punishing him somehow that Stanford is right now thinking, I wonder what he's doing to Evelyn in Europe. And that he can somehow feel what's happening, you know, because he he if when you're obsessed with someone, you think they're thinking about you as much as you are about them. But that's the whole point. They're not. Yeah, that's true. Which is more infuriating. So, it, it you know, I don't know. I, I certainly I'm no geologist, so I couldn't speak to <laughs> geologist. It's just a, it's an Internet expression. Oh, OK. <laughs> well, anyway, so Harry is he's got some problems in his head. And after he did that sexual assault, beating, crazy shit. He was very apologetic, but also really upbeat. He was in a great mood. Oh, (laughs) well, glad to see you've turned yourself around there. I know. She's like, I guess I'm glad you're in a good mood because that means you might not be as horrible to me, but just ugh, awful. And he kept kept asking her to marry him. Now will you marry me? Yeah. Now that <laughs> How about I'm, now? Now that I'm such a stand-up guy, I get <laughs> worse I... and worse the longer you spend time with me. Don't you want to marry me? Isn't this typical? I mean, at least from what I see of my, my women friends on dating apps is like, you know, guys will make an introduction and you'll be like, not interested. And they're like, well, what if I'm more of a horrible piece of shit? Now are you interested? Like that seems oh. to be a recurrent thread to this day. That is true. It's not a good angle, dudes. There are many other ways. Yeah. Please stop using that one. And if you're letting it work, ladies, please stop. You're fucking it up for the rest of us. There are better people out there, I promise you. Maybe not many. (laughs) Wow. And they'll still be flawed. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's better than Harry. Well, unfortunately, Evelyn kind of felt that she had no alternative from Harry. Yeah. Stanford's already married, so she's she's not getting his ring on her finger. And John Barrymore is out of the picture, obviously. Yep. So she's kind of like, if I marry Harry, my whole family and me are good forever. I mean, it's, financially, we'll, we'll be fine. So fine. Yeah, it's going back to that quote we talked about at the beginning to, to keep in mind. It's exactly that. Yeah, relying on sometimes violent men for survival. That's yep. exactly what's happening here. And they married in April 1905. But even even though he won the prize or whatever, Stanford White was still this huge obsession with Harry. I mean, you don't get over something like that right away. Right. And the thing he did to Evelyn was kind of the focus of his hatred at this point. He yeah. kind of stopped talking about the clubs thing and was just like, he's a debaucher of women. Fuck this guy. And he actually thought that Stanford had set tails on him, was like spying on him or something. Mm-hmm. So he starts carrying a pistol everywhere he goes. It made me think of... <laughs> I don't know why, because this is so far off base, (laughs) but it made me think of Wanda and Thanos in Endgame (laughs) when she finds him on the battlefield and she's like, you took everything from me. And Thanos says, I don't even know who you are. Oh, yeah. That's that's the dynamic I'm picturing here. Right. Except Wanda's cooler than Harry, but yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Harry's no Wanda. (laughs) I'm with that. Although both prone to violent tendencies sometimes overreact a little bit. True. Um, (laughs) True. That's where it ends. So Evelyn goes to meet Harry at a bar the night of June 25th. It's 1906, and he's already put three drinks away. So she saw Stanford White come in with his son while they're there, and 
she was afraid Harry was gonna freak the fuck out and lose his temper, but he actually was pretty chill. He took it pretty well, except that when it was time for them to leave, he stands up and he put his straw hat on his head with such force that it cracked the brim. He busted his own hat. <laughs> Just really let his temper shine through there. All right, honey, I think it's time to go. We've had a very nice evening. Let me just get my hat. Oops. I mean, this hat probably costs like 40 bucks. I know, right? <laughs> Jeez. Just 1.2 billion in today's dollars. <laughs> so he told her he bought tickets to see a play called Mamselle Champagne at Madison Square Garden's rooftop theater that night. Mamselle Champagne, it's the talk of the town. Everybody's seeing Mamselle Champagne at Madison Square Garden. It's this year's Floridora. <laughs> Which was last year's Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> So they go see the show, Madison Square Garden, Rooftop Theater, and seated not far away from them was the man himself, Stanford White. And in the middle of the song called, I Could Love a Thousand Girls, mm -hmm. which let me give you a piece of that. It's, oh, yeah, please. I could love a thousand girls. Give me two or three and that's not enough. Mm -hmm. I need 997 more. If you gave me a thousand girls, I would love them all. I'm the man in 1906 or any point in history. <laughs> it's a beautiful number. Wow, I can kind of see why it closed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the middle of this song, Harry Thaws stands up, calmly walks right over to Stanford White, and shoots him in the face point blank three times. Stanford died instantly. A lot of people thought it was part of the show. They, which I think is funny because no no one was in the the audience. <laughs> well, it's immersive theater, you know, like, oh, wow, they're really know. breaking the fourth wall tonight. My goodness. <laughs> it broke the fourth wall of that guy's face. <laughs> well, that's true because they kind of noticed that his face was missing now. So they were like, that's oh, what, just that's kidding. That's what tipped everybody off. Yeah. They're like, wait, it's 1906. Special effects are not this good yet. And in the middle of the screaming, Harry yells, I did it because he ruined my wife. Mm -hmm. And they're not sure 100% of witness accounts if he said he ruined my wife or he ruined my life. Mm -hmm. They're making a rush. Yeah, people are screaming. They're making a rush for the exit. Meanwhile, the manager of the show jumps on a table and tells the show to go on. He says, go on playing. Bring on the chorus. <laughs> Fucking theater people. <laughs> I know, right? He's like, we paid for this damn venue and we're going to damn use it. <laughs> as a lifelong theater person, I could say, Fucking theater people. And, well, as a producer, I'm like, I ain't refunding all these tickets. <laughs> Y'all get in the fucking show. We right. got to get at least a halftime because then I don't have to refund you. <laughs> Madison Square rooftop. This ain't a cheap venue, people. I know. Like, I got to pay all these girls. A thousand girls. <laughs> got to pay a thousand girls and the guy who could love them. <laughs> so Harry's led away by a police officer. And Evelyn's like, look at what a fix you're in. And he says, I probably saved your life. Or maybe he said, I probably saved your wife. People, <laughs> witness counts were uncertain. No, he said, I probably saved your life. Not sure what he meant by that. Well, it's just funny because it's worth noting, I don't think Stanford ever beat her. He only raped her. Right. Whereas right. Harry beat and raped her. So actually, she's with the worst of the yeah. two devils in her life. Yeah. So Harry's charged with murder. 
and he is put into prison to await his trial. You know, because of the murder he did. Because of the murder. <laughs> Evelyn spent a few nights with a friend so that she could escape the press. They even gave her the hot new nickname, The Girl Houdini, mm. because she was so good at escaping the press, right? Mm-hmm. And... Thomas Edison's studio worked overtime to rush a film version into the Nickelodeons called The Rooftop Murder, which, go figure, that Thomas Edison himself would be like, ah, I could make a dime off of this. <laughs> yeah, it came out like the next week. Yeah. Like he, they took no time. They did not get any facts. They they just were like, here's a beautiful girl and the two men who love die and a bloody murder over this lady. Yeah, the trial was a little awkward. Because Evelyn testified on behalf of Harry, and her mother testified on behalf of the prosecution. Whoops. Harry felt that he had done nothing wrong. He said there's no crime here at all. He had just saved the world and all the women in it from this notorious rapist. In his testimony, he said Stanford had boasted of taking advantage of 378 girls... And that workmen frequently heard the screams of young women coming out of Stanford's love nest with the velvet swing in it. So the idea is to make the jury hate Stanford so much that they would kind of decide that everything is cool and kosher and let this guy go. So the trial actually became more a trial about Stanford White than about Harry Thaw. And they kind of invented at this point the idea of temporary insanity. Ooh. Um, because they were like, Harry's not crazy. We don't want we don't want y'all to think he's crazy or anything. But he did have like a temporary insanity. They called dementia Americana. Oh. Because it was the same madness that any red blooded male would feel when it came to protecting the flower of womanhood, basically. Wow. So they were like, if you're a, a dude in America, of course you're going to kill some guy who is a sexual assaulter. And any one of you would have done the same, his lawyer says. <laughs> yeah. The jury's like, yeah, I would murder someone. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. He's right about that. I've, mm-hmm. I've been waiting for an excuse. <laughs> juror number three says. Ew. Please excuse juror number three from the <laughs> proceedings. Um, so in order to kind of drive this point home, the defense managed to convince Evelyn to share the details of her rape by Stanford on the stand. Wow. And it was incredibly difficult for her to testify about sure. this. She cried a lot. She even collapsed at one point. They had to call a recess. So it was a really difficult thing for her to do to share this. But she did. And she was very, I mean, pretty lurid about she was pretty clear about what had happened. So much so that President Theodore Roosevelt told the Postmaster General to ban accounts of the trial from the mails because it was pornography. It's worth mentioning here that the public opinion was on Harry's side. Generally, they were like, yeah, oh, sure, this guy was horrible and he killed him and that's just justice. Dementia Americana sounds good to me. Uh Uh-huh. And he got bags of fan mail. And most people thought that he should be acquitted because, yeah, he was protecting American womanhood. There was even a song written about him at the time called For My Wife and Home. You know a little bit of that song, don't you? Oh, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Sure, yeah. How does it go? It goes, uh... Me a gun and let me shoot it for my wife and home. <laughs> it's, it's a jazzy little number, yeah, isn't it's, it? It's really, it's for, it's for the charts, you know, it's top 40. <laughs> uh huh. What was the next line? There was one, there's another line. There's really... another line? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was. Um... <laughs> I really just like to shoot my gun, but I need a good reason. Give me one. <laughs> what, a, what a ditty. It's a real, it really slaps. <laughs> I know. Why don't we use it today? It was a, it was a bop. Um, <laughs> it was a bop. <laughs> like the trial ended in a hung jury, 
right? So they had to arrange a second trial. And this time, the defense decided, we're going to convince the jury that he was clinically insane. We'll get him shipped off to an asylum. And then we'll get him out of the asylum. We'll work on that. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. We basically, we just don't want him to get the electric chair, right? Mm -hmm. This was New York State. Death penalty was there. Electric chair was a big thing. They loved using it. Uh, <laughs> he was he was definitely, uh, you know, that was a possibility. So this proved to be successful. It worked. For some reason, they believed he was crazy. Right. He went to the Mateawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in 1909. And because he was rich, he had a real nice stay. Right. I mean, just plush cushions, uh, fancy art on the walls, probably, mm-hmm. you know, classical music playing all day. There's a picture of him in like a private room with a tablecloth dinner, you know, being served. Oh, really sure, nice yeah. dinner being served. So yeah. he was very com- comfy cozy in yep. this asylum. Evelyn testified again for him at the second trial after being promised some money from his family, the Thaws. But then after the verdict, they totally cut ties with her. Didn't get any more funds, no communication. That was it. In 1910, he was appealing, uh, you know, trying to get out of the asylum. He's like, I'm saying I'm not crazy, whatever. But unfortunately for him, this woman named Susie Merrill testified that Harry used to rent rooms from her in 1902 for the purpose of taking women there to physically and emotionally abuse them. And then he would pay them money to keep them quiet. And she even was able to produce this jeweled whip that he liked to use on them. Damn, get him, Susie. I know, right? She said, I'm not fucking listening to this shit. Uh -uh. So the judge is like, well, obviously this guy's nuts. (laughs) He's locking up these ladies and whipping them. You're fucking crazy. So he sends him back to Mateawan. Now, and and that's, you know, disclaimer, not to say that people who like using whips Mm -hmm. and flogging and things like that in a sexual atmosphere, uh, that's totally fine. As long as it's consensual with all parties and everyone agreed to it and nobody's being paid to keep their mouths shut about it later. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty bad sign. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's true that around this time, probably any sexually deviant behavior was like enough to be like, this guy's either a pervert or an insane person or a homosexual or something, you know. Right. Something put him away for good. Yeah. But, but in this circumstance, this was. Put, put him away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also in 1910, Evelyn gave birth to a son. Uh, She said it was Harry's and that they conceived during a conjugal visit that she had paid him, I guess, at the at the asylum. Mm -hmm. But until his death, Harry denied paternity of this child. He said, I had nothing to do with that shit. Yeah. It's hard to say because I'm like, I could see if she had like her own little affair going on on the side. She would say, well, of course, it's my husband's child. Right. And not someone else's. On the right. other hand, I could also see him being like, I'm I've gotten what I want from this girl. I don't want to pay for a kid the rest of my life. Right. So I'm just going to say I don't fucking know that kid. Right. So I don't know. I, I couldn't decide for myself if yeah. she was lying or not. In 1913, somehow Harry just walked out of Mateawan, I guess because of his money again just made him, they didn't lock him up. And but it stuff. was like, he wasn't released. No, no, no. He it was just walked escape. out. Yeah, he he, yeah. Es- he escaped. It was just that confidence, you know, he just like walked out the door and the guy's like, wait, should you be leaving? He's like, yep, I'm heading out. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> oh, OK. Like, well, OK, I guess mm-hmm. if, if you say so, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Come back again sometime. You will. Yeah. <laughs> and he crossed the border to Quebec yeah. to hide in Canada. And a lot of people believed that Harry's mother arranged this escape. Makes sense. Because Harry's mother, oof, she's a mess. Yeah. Uh, she had been trying to get his insanity conviction overturned with some crazy fucking ideas, including this insane one where her whole plot is 
she was going to pay this Brooklyn immigrant to set a fire, confess to arson, get sent to Mateawan, and then collect intelligence on the administrator of Mateawan for her. I need a guy on the inside. So I need you to go set a fire and get yourself locked up I in an insane the asylum. The amount of places this could go wrong, because oh, yeah. who said he would get to an insane asylum instead right. of go to jail? Who, said, who says he would go to Mateawan over somewhere else? I mean, a lot. it's just a lot of things had to fall into place for this plot to work. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad it didn't work out because poor Im- this poor immigrant right. guy, whoever he was, I, I hope you did something else. <laughs> so anyway, she's a mess. And he lasted in Quebec for about a year before he got extradited back to New York and put back in Mateoan in December 1914. Finally, they get a third trial together. It's 1915. And this time, Evelyn refused to testify. She said, he hid behind my skirts through two trials and I won't stand for it again. So Harry and Evelyn divorced that year. And the court decided that he wasn't insane. And they let him out of Mateoan in July 1916. Kind of curious how they came to the conclusion that this very insane, violent person wasn't insane, but whatever. Money. Oh, yeah, money. That's right. I keep forgetting about that Probably factor. Money. But... Maybe they spoke too soon, saying that he wasn't insane, because that same year, he was charged and convicted with the kidnapping, beating, and sexual assault of a 19-year-old boy named Frederick Gump. He promised to pay Frederick's way in college. That's sort of how he roped him in. So then after this, Harry fled to Philadelphia and tried to convince Frederick and his family to take a half million dollars in hush money. But they refused. Mm -hmm. They were like, no, you're fucking Harry Thaw. Like, we're going to win this case. Mm -hmm. And Harry was found once again to be insane. And this time he was committed to Kirkbride Asylum in Philadelphia, finally under tight security. He was judged to be sane again and allowed out in 1924, like eight years later. And then he tried getting into the movies. (laughs) Says, "Ah, Maybe I'll just be a movie producer, a movie star. But that didn't work out. He was actually sued for breach of contract, and he had to pay a $25,000 settlement. And then he was like, fuck this, I'm moving to Florida. Many, many older New York men, I guess, are like, <laughs> you know what, let me go to Florida. Even back then. <laughs> Evelyn tried careers in vaudeville. She was in several silent films. She worked as a bar hostess and entertained at stag parties. She may have run a speakeasy during Prohibition, and she performed burlesque. Though she wasn't a stripper, she told press in 1939, I wish I was a strip teaser. I wouldn't have to bother with so many clothes. <laughs> in 1926, she attempted suicide. And that's when Harry, who had been keeping tabs on her, by the way. So even though he doesn't want to marry her, he doesn't want to be married. He don't want to pay for the kid. He don't want to be with her. But he does like to keep an eye on her and see what she's up to. Are you suggesting to me that Harry Thaw had like an obsessive personality and that he really closely focused on people that he wasn't that involved with. Right. Maybe he had a bit of a controlling thing. I mean, I don't want to say anything too harsh. Weird. So he'd been keeping tabs on her. He saw she was in the hospital. He went to visit her and the papers were like, oh, they're getting back together. Oh, my goodness. But no, they were not. She told the Times that they reconciled, but their relationship would not continue. In 1947, Harry Thaw died. He left behind an estate worth about a million dollars. Uh, can we look at what a million dollars is worth today? Uh-huh. $12 million. Wow. Which is pretty good, although I have to wonder what happened to all the rest of that $40 yeah. million. Dollar it didn't whatever. grow with inflation no. that well, because he used to have a lot more. Yeah, he lost some money on, in the railroads or yeah. something. 
Maybe in the stock market or something. Maybe on court fees. I mean, <laughs> That's true. He spent it all spent at, the, at Mateo One. Right. <laughs> Keeping up his lifestyle. And he left $10,000 for Evelyn in his will, about 1% of his overall worth, which kind of feels like, I mean, I guess it's nice he left her anything, but it kind of feels like a little bit of a fuck you. Yeah. Not that much, you know. Evelyn's son, Russell, did appear in some of her films with her, and he eventually became a successful pilot. He even beat Amelia Earhart in an air race once. And then he crashed also once in Atlanta, Georgia. It wasn't fatal or anything. I just thought it was fun because we live in Atlanta, Georgia. I wonder if we can go find the site where Russell Nesbitt crashed his plane in Atlanta. Sure, there's a plaque. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they love a plaque in this city. So Evelyn published her memoirs. And the L.A. Times said that her writings, quote, show her to be clever, shrewd and self-aware. A good writer, actually. Mm -hmm. And in 1955, she sold her story to Hollywood. And Joan Collins played her in the movie. The movie was The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. And Evelyn worked on the movie as a technical advisor. Mm -hmm. So I think she made like another 10 grand doing that or something. That's good. That's good. And she died in 1967 in a nursing home in Santa Monica, California. She was 82 years old. Not bad. I mean... She did marry one other time, like a fellow vaudeville star, but it was a short-lived marriage, um, did not last, and then she was single the rest of her life, which I kind of imagined she was like, huh, finally, (laughs) get these dudes out of here, because they just feel like they were more trouble than they were worth. Not a lot of luck in the romance department, but I mean, you know, she lived out her life. She wasn't destitute. She Mm -mm. wasn't incredibly wealthy or anything, but she seemed to do all right, and was able to get her story told the way that she wanted it to some degree, I think. Yeah, I feel this is a tough one. Uh, I just feel bad for her. I feel like she just had a lot of fucked up circumstances, kind of felt like a lot of her life maybe felt like a prison, even a pretty one at times. Yeah. Because even the modeling was like she liked it, but she only did it for money because they were broke. I'm not sure she would have done that if her father had been alive to pay for things. You know, maybe she would have gone into something more respectable or whatever, like a more respectable artistic career path or or at least not feel like I have to say yes to some old dude because he's paying for my brother and my mother and me to not live in the street, you know? So anyway. You said this about Tesla, I think. And, you know, you just feel like some people just deserve a do over. Yeah. Like you didn't get a good, get a mulligan on that one. (laughs) Come back. And I think it's a good story too, because it has so much really important conversation about, first of all, beauty and how it can be an attractor, but also, again, kind of a prison for you. You have a really hard time with people sometimes if you're too attractive and they get obsessed with you. And now you're like, I know you know. Story of my life, honestly. (laughs) I mean, these bitches be four or five deep in the yard and I have to like, push i have to elbow him out of the way it's not just the bitches it's everybody you know mm-hmm. but uh, we... i don't have that problem but i don't want it so thank you very much for well i think you're so intimidatingly pretty <laughs> that Aww. people are afraid to Thanks, approach babe. you well that's what we need to go we need to time travel back okay to 1901 uh-huh. or whatever or be- even before that i guess yeah and just tell evelyn like girl you look cute and it's working for you but you need kind of a resting bitch face otherwise <laughs> people are gonna think they can walk all over you we need to cultivate yeah. a, bis- a bitch face <laughs> should go back to 10,000 bc <laughs> find this the is first gonna be really important later and say look just just Establish dominance now. 
you hit him on the head and drag him back to the cave. Yeah. So that's the story of Evelyn Nesbitt and Harry K. Thaw and Stanford White. What a trio. What a what, triad. Uh, and the turn of the century, New York. There's almost more of a romance, uh, you know, between Harry and Stanford. There's like that relationship was almost the most intense out of out of the three of them. Mm-hmm. The way Harry felt about Stanford having just nonstop, nonstop focus. Yeah. I don't see a lot of romance in this one. Oh, no. I there, mean, I there's think... hardly any. It's a good uh, relationship story, obviously. And it's passion and, yep. and you know, whatever. Yeah. But I was like, there's there's very little like candlelit dinners and nice things being said. And they gave her a lot of stuff. But even that was more a mark of ownership, yeah. I think, than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So. But of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm, yeah. You, know, you can always email us. I hope it lived up to your, your dreams, Brandy, <laughs> to yeah. hear the story. Thanks again for sending that in. Thank you. Uh, and if you've got ideas for another story, then mm-hmm. go ahead and email us at yeah. romance at iheartmedia.com. Right. And we're on social media as well. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. Or the show is at Ridic Romance, Twitter and Instagram. You can find us there. Mm-hmm. Slide into the DMs and tell us what you like. Yeah. And I'll, thanks so much for leaving reviews also on Apple Podcasts. That's very useful for the show. So if you oh, uh, if man. you like to leave reviews um, or if you like us and you want to help us out, please leave a review there. Give us some five stars. I have got a deep, passionate romance with some of these reviews. I on know. our podcast. So nice. It's so great. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll get out of here and we'll see you with the next episode. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.